Welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Chris Brown. For more information on our church, visit c3church.narara.net. We're talking about living from the inside out. And uh, the fact is we've all been given free will. It's a wonderful kind of scary thing. Young Keelan was kind of down on himself at some point for misbehaving. You'd be pleased to know, you know, that all children, if you're a parent, it's the human condition. We even misbehave when we grow up. (laughs) We don't get in trouble for it as much. Is a bit of a problem sometimes, but uh, he was in trouble and he misbehaved and I was talking to him about making his choices and he blurted out, well, I just wish I didn't have free will. I don't want free will. I'm making bad choices. <laughs> I said, yeah, no, that's kind of appealing in a way. You know, and then I talked to him about the whole thing of, you know, God hasn't made us robots and it's kind of a wonderful thing. But he was frustrated that he had this, this power of choice and he's making bad choices. And, you know, more than any other time in history... Today, this is really evident, the power of our choice, because our society's developed in such a way that people have got more choices about how they work and where they work and how they're going to live than other times in history. Peter Drucker, the management expert, you may have heard of him, he's an author, he said this, in a few hundred years, when the history of our time will be written from a long-term perspective, it's likely that the most important event historians will see is not technology, not the internet, and not e-commerce. It is an unprecedented change in the human condition. For the first time, literally, substantial and rapidly growing numbers of people have choices. For the first time, they have to manage themselves. And society is totally unprepared for it. He's thinking particularly of things like career choice and retirement planning, leisure options, lifestyle choices. Uh, And it's true, all this has changed radically uh, from the days when someone simply followed their father into the family business or into that particular profession and lived their whole life in just that little town or village. And today, of course, we've got career fluidity. They say that, you know, young people today may have an average of seven different careers in their lifetime now. Uh, More and more, you've got the average worker with money and time and options to invest in all different ways that they get to choose. And our society provides a whole bunch of options to choose from in terms of entertainment. There's all kinds of tourism options that are available that weren't just a generation ago. Uh, The coffee you drink, we're talking about coffee. You know, people are down to, well, I want this kind of bean from this part of the world and I want it extracted and roasted this way. And, you know, I mean, even the type of water you have in a restaurant. You know, you've got to be careful when they say still or sparkling. You go, still, well, that's $18 right there. You mean, tap, tap, hit me. I'm not going to die. Just give me tap water. But, you know, some restaurants have water sommeliers. You know, a sommelier is someone who's traditionally chosen all different kinds of wines and some top restaurants will have a, a sommelier and that's their job to... I mean, I worked with a guy who was a sommelier and he could tell you not just what the kind of wine was, not just, oh, that's a Chardonnay, that's a Riesling. That's, yeah. He'll tell you the area it comes from, the company 
the vintage. And so I would go on business trips with him and I'd order the wine and I wouldn't tell him what I've ordered. And I'd say, there you go. And he'd say, well, that's a, that's an 82, uh, that's a Margaret River, yeah, Sauvignon Blanc. I'd say it's either one of this two, oh, it's Ketnica State or Tyrrell's or, uh, oh, come on. And he would be spot on. So he'd train. But now they've got water sommeliers. There's a restaurant in Los Angeles. They've got a 20 page menu of all the different waters you can choose from, from all around the world. So there's options out there. Yeah, we've got a lot of choice. It's a thing, it really is. But you know the most important choice we can possibly make is an eternal one. And that's to decide who Jesus Christ was and who Jesus Christ is and who he will be in your life. And uh, I quoted from uh, a Norwegian pastor who's passed away now. A few weeks ago I quoted uh, Ole Hulsby. Uh, This guy was an author and a pastor And I mentioned he had a wonderful quote about our helplessness actually helping our prayers, having a place of helplessness. Um, And uh, there's an incident that I like uh, like this guy, and I've only ever read one of his books and obviously never met him. But uh, he caused a stir. In 1953, he gave a radio speech uh, in Norway, and he said this, If you are not a Christian, and if you fell dead to the floor this moment, you will fall at the same time into hell. He went on and said, how can you, who is unconverted, lie down calmly to sleep at night? You don't know if you'll wake up in your bed or in hell. Now, the next day, the speech made the front page of the newspapers in Oslo and around different parts of Norway. He was condemned for being so confronting because, and there was a major debate about the existence of hell that followed nationally. Uh, because the state-run church had quite a few liberal-minded, and I don't mean politically liberal, I mean ethically, morally, theologically liberal, liberally-minded uh, leaders. In other words, people who didn't really want to believe in the uncomfortable reality of hell as the Bible teaches. Uh, and so he wasn't what you'd call a politically correct kind of leader or theologian. Um, Uh, But what he was doing was pointing out the importance of choosing wisely, of whether you're going to repent to follow Jesus and go to heaven or follow the natural consequences of sin that runs in our veins and have an eternal consequence. So let's get that choice right. Of all the power, of all the choices, of all the free will options that we have, let's decide to follow Jesus. Amen? And if you've never made that decision, I'll give you an opportunity before you go home today, and it's literally the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. You know, getting married is is kind of a big decision. We'll be married 30 years this May, and we're having the month off. First time Jonathan Kelty said, you need to have more long service leave. You've got all these this long service leave accrued. So that was one recommendation we liked. Made up for the 18 other. No, no. Um, and so we're having four weeks off in May. You're in great hands. We've got preachers lined up all within here. Uh, and so we're having four weeks off and um, that's exciting. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a big decision. Who are you going to marry? And I made a great decision. You'll be pleased to know. And... Um, And yet even more important than that or any other decision is, who is Jesus? What are we going to do with that issue? Um, And then, of course, as we go along in life, following Jesus, we've constantly got other choices to make. And one key one is this issue of whether we'll live reacting to circumstances or whether we choose to live from the inside out, as we're saying. In other words, will we let God work in us 
so that the major influence on how we live and how we enjoy life and how we influence others is from what's going on inside us in response to God? Or will we just keep reacting to whatever situations we find ourselves in? And of course, a major key to getting this right is surrendering to God, of admitting that we can't do it all by ourselves that well. Uh, of living just the way I plan to and making all the decisions by myself without his influence is not going to help me in the long term and be a blessing to others and bring glory to him. But the best way is if I submit and surrender my thoughts, my will, my plans to him and then follow him and find the plans and purposes and, and ideas that he has for my life are far greater than what I could come up with by myself. So I want to look at someone who did this well. You may have heard of him, Paul the Apostle. And uh, he had plans. I mean, he was a man on a mission. Even before he met Christ and became a missionary, he was a man on a mission. He had his idea of what should be done. Uh, But then along the way, he learned submission. He learned to find this balance between his ideas, type A personality, choleric-minded, come on, I've got to do something, but then also working with God, God's sovereignty and the fact that God's got a bigger picture than what we might just have in our own heart. And so, um, you know, this all started for Paul on the road to Damascus. And you read about that in the book of Acts. He's a zealous Jewish leader who hates Christians who are a threat to his religion. He's a Pharisee. And... um, when you read in Acts chapter 9, you know he's, he's on the way to Damascus to literally capture the Christians in that city, put them in chains and bring them back to Jerusalem where they'll be tried and stoned to death. That's his purpose. That's his mission. He's focused and he gets interrupted in a dramatic way because, as you may remember, he's blinded by the Lord and he has this voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, as he was known at the time, why do you persecute, persecute me? Who are you? Well, I'm Jesus. And so Jesus reveals himself as God and Saul's life is turned right around from persecuting Christians to becoming one. And that's a, it's a wonderful number of stories and, and pictures to imagine how they reacted. You know, all the believers and Paul rocks up, you know, hi guys, no, 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 I'm one of you. Yeah, right, sure. You know, this is a set up and you can imagine all the, the, uh, the interplay in those early days of how it all panned out. Um, and so now he's got he's to submit uh, his strong personality to God's sovereignty and the plan that Jesus is going to unfold for him as he begins to serve him. Uh, and in fact, Saul started to use his Roman name, Paul, to reveal and reflect and show uh, his newfound humility because Paul means little. And that was his Roman name. His Hebrew name was Saul. But he went with Paul to, to, to you know, as part of his newfound humility and submission to God's plan. And so that, that occurred at about 36 AD. And what I want to do is look at some scriptures in a timeline over Paul's life and see how he carried this tension between having an idea, having a plan of your own, but then constantly having to submit to God and letting him work on the inside. Um, and that's the, hence the, the phrase, oh, 
we had a screen living from the inside out. Maybe they'll find and put it up there. But anyway, there's a, a, a the phrase in the screen that, that should be up there. Um, so that was 36 AD. Now, fast track, uh, 20 years later, in 56 AD, Paul starts to write large parts, most of the two-thirds or so of the New Testament that we have today, and he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these letters that have been preserved and recorded. And he writes to different churches or individuals all around the known world. So in 56 AD, he writes to the church in Corinth, which is, of course, still today Corinth in Greece. Um, He's living in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey at the time. And he talks about his plans to visit the Corinthians. But if you look in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, notice the way he writes about the plans that he has. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 3 to 7, and uh, it may come up on the screen, uh, and he says this, When I come, I will write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, they can travel with me. I'm coming to visit you after I've been to Macedonia, for I'm planning to travel through Macedonia, perhaps... I will stay a while with you, possibly all winter. And then you can send me on my way to my next destination. This time, I don't want to make just a short visit and then go right on. I want to come and stay a while if the Lord will let me. I just want you to notice some of those phrases. If it seems appropriate, I am planning, perhaps, possibly, if the Lord will let me. Now, you could say he sounds a little unsure, but I think he's just learned that he's got plans, but he's also got the Lord. And he submits those plans with this attitude of surrender. And there's many other examples in the New Testament, including when you read the book of Acts, that chronicles his missionary journeys. And you see how God is leading Paul and even taking bad situations and turning them around for good. For example, uh, you know, there's a shipwreck that on one hand nearly kills everyone on board and then you realise God's turning this around to bring revival to the island of Malta where they land and, uh, and, and, uh, and there's Christine cheering uh, for her Maltese heritage. Um, and, uh, and so, it's, you know, when he says, oh, I, I might be able to do this or I hope to, I plan to, notice this is not an excuse for being unorganised or lazy because some people could read that and think, cool. This is awesome. I can just kind of talk like Paul talked and get away with it. Like, yeah, we can do that. Should be fine. Sounds like a plan. Let's talk. Maybe, sort of. I'll see. Yeah, we'll work it out. You know, so that's that's not the takeout value of this, you know, and then blame God for being unorganized, saying, oh, well, it was just the Lord's will, man. Hey, I'm following the leading of the Spirit. No, no, no. We still you know, plan our lives and are punctual and all that. But Paul just found God can and should ultimately lead his life. And, uh, you know, Proverbs says in Proverbs 16.9, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. And so that is just this, you know, tension or interplay between our plans and his plans and how we've got to constantly kind of see them meshing together. So, When you follow Paul, he does end up getting to Corinth. And about two years later, uh, he's writing to the believers in another city, a little place called Rome. You may have heard of it. And 
And so there's this letter uh, which is, you know, gone down in history as a, a great explanation of salvation, description of, of the uh, workings of, of salvation, but also of walking out that salvation with God in this attitude of, of surrender and submission. And, uh, and if you look at Romans 12, you see this wonderful passage about how, again, we don't want the world to control us, but we want the Lord to control us and let God work on us from the inside. So if you read Romans 12, 1 to 2, here's Paul, you know, reflecting on his life and how others should live. And he says, um, 12, Romans 12, I appeal, this is the ESV, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's an incredible phrase, isn't it? A sacrifice that hasn't died. Most sacrifices are killed in the process of sacrifice. Of sacrifice. But this one is somehow kept alive. This is the way we should live. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or an appropriate act of worship, translations say. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So notice there, don't be conformed to this world. One translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God work on you and then let that work out into the world that you're in. I want to read the same passage from the message translation or paraphrase. You understand this is not a, a direct translation. This guy uh, has had some liberties with the language and made it modern. Um, but it's, it captures uh, some concepts really well. Listen to this. In the same passage in, mes- in the message translation, he says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Again, not doing it all by yourself, but just working with God, taking the grace that God's given and living out of that. Then look at verse 2. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Come on, that's a great phrase, isn't it? You can easily just, you know, what do they say? I've had people ask me, where is it in the Bible that says, be in the world but not of the world? It's not actually a scripture, but it's a good phrase, to be in the world and not of it. We are connected, engaged, witnessing, influencing, loving people. We're not going to be hermits and separate and ascetic kind of weird disconnected people but at the same time there's a separation this isn't our whole our home our citizenship is in heaven our eternal home and destiny is waiting beyond whatever the world offers and so if you don't get the perfect house don't worry find your house renovate it you move in it's not going to be you know this oh no this was 20 millimeters get the builder to do a reno just theoretically get a builder to do a renovation, you know, and they come and they do their best and then you find it's not perfect. Why? I wanted a perfect house. I'm just theoretically, hypothetically, just walking over this. He's a builder. Does a great job. Um, In fact, some people here would be happy customers and clients. Uh, But there's an unsettledness about the world that is a good thing. 
because it's not our permanent home. Yeah? And, um, and so, sorry, I, I, I'm preaching too much straight out. Of, I want to move on. He says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Listen, instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Notice that phrase there in verse 2. You'll be changed from the inside out. Instead of letting the world affect you and influence you, fix your attention on God and he'll work on you and change you, exactly what we've been saying from the inside out. And notice the responsibility here that's mentioned. The emphasis is on what you need to do. Of course, we're recipients of God's grace, right? So we can't do anything worthwhile without him. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Remember a few weeks ago, we preached from John 15 and, you know, we're abiding in the vine. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. We need his life force in us. We can't do anything on our own. But at the same time, we choose whether we will graft our branch into the vine. We can cut ourselves off or join. It's up to us. And here, he's talking quite a lot about our power to choose. He says, you present your life to God as a sacrifice. You embrace what God has done for you. It's up to you whether you let yourself be conformed to the world whether you focus on God, whether you recognize what God wants and you respond. They're all verbs that relate to our power of choice, what we do. But then, of course, there's things that only God can do in response. He talks about the Holy Spirit touching us, growing in us, changing us. And so there's this wonderful you know, interplay connection between God's love, God's grace, God's power, but also our responsibility and our power of choice. You see that? Anyone? Hello? How are we going? All right. One more passage. Now, we've got a few more years later. So we're now about 62 AD, and Paul now is in Rome, right? He was writing to the Romans. Now he's in Rome, and now he's writing back to some people in what is Turkey today in Colossae. So this letter is to the Colossians. So if you go to Colossians 3, here's um, Paul writing verse 12 to 16. Listen to this passage. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So again, see the responsibility. He keeps saying, put on certain attitudes. Well, of course, the attitudes are qualities that we get from God, but there's still our responsibility to put on. I like that phrase. It's like getting dressed. It's like Ephesians 5, put on the Lord's armor. The God, God provides the armor, but you choose whether you're going to put it on. And, uh, you know, it's not a good feeling when you're badly dressed for a certain occasion. It's good to be putting on the right clothes. Uh, we drove John uh, Finkelly to the airport on Wednesday and we were talking about 
you know, the t- Perth Sydney time difference, and he flies a lot backwards and forwards across the country, and how sometimes he's tired in the morning and he's got to gear up, and you know, the challenges of that. And it reminded me of a story that my father told me, and I told John because my dad was a pilot. I may have told you this, but he had a friend who was a Qantas captain, and they obviously have to get to the airport early, like real early. If they've got an early flight, they've got to put their flight plan in and do all these checks before the flight takes off. And so this guy arrived at the airport, got out of the car, put on his Qantas captain's cap and walked off into the airport and then looked down to see he still had his pyjamas and dressing gown and slippers on. And, you know, he had to find a phone. This is long before mobile phone days and he rang his wife and his wife came and brought a uniform to him. Can you imagine getting on a plane? And seeing, I mean, they, they say clothes maketh, clothes maketh a man, you know, maketh a man. It, imagine seeing the Qantas, oh, morning everyone, come on boy, we'll be fine. Oh, you know, and he's wearing his jammies, he's having a scratch, and you know, oh, where are we going? Everyone got any, oh, we're going north, uh, Europe, somewhere in, yeah, we'll be fine. Everyone got a coffee? Hey, can someone give me a hand? I'm a bit tired People will be freaking out. You know, there's something about the uniform. You see him striding around and I've got the captain's bars. You think, I mean, really, it's just clothing. But for some reason, we think, no, no, I'll put my life in this guy's hands. Complete stranger, but he looks good. So I'm going to be safe. You know, and we're going to, as long as he, we, you know, we die looking smart, it'll be fine. You know, but, um, but no, we're not going to die. We're going to, we're going to live because he's dressed well there. And so clothes make a difference. And here, we're told to put on certain attitudes. But again, the attitudes aren't something that we conjure up or create by ourselves. They're coming from God. The Holy Spirit's working in us and working on us. And I want you to notice verse 15. I love this. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. So again, there's the responsibility. It's up to you. Allow. You let. You choose. But what is it? It's the peace of God. And in Philippians, we're told the peace of God passes all understanding and can guard your heart and guard your mind in every situation. And perhaps you've been able to and hopefully will have tapped into that incredible supernatural peace where you're in the middle of a storm and yet somehow the peace of God is ruling. It's in charge. And this is a powerful thing because, you know, the word there in Greek used for rule, it's the same word they used to describe someone who governed a place, who was uh, uh, an arbitrator or an umpire in sporting competitions. And so, you know, you can see kids playing down at the park and they form a couple of teams and away they go, but you can also see that in 10 minutes' time, all hell breaks loose because there's no one to decide whether the ball was really out or whether, you know, it was leg before wicket or did he really take the catch or was that really a goal or not? Or, and so that's why the game is better with an umpire. And then there's no fighting. There's someone making a decision. They're ruling the game and helping it to flow better. And so we get to decide whether God's going to be in charge of our life. And if we do, the game of life flows a lot better. And things are more ordered. And specifically, it talks here about God's peace, ruling our hearts. And that's such a wonderful, powerful opportunity for us. Because once you do that, that peace will be in charge of everything else that's going on on the inside. And it'll order the emotions around because it's got the whistle. And, you know, you can see two 
teams of great big rugby players. We saw the first game of rugby, saw Caleb and Luke and John smashing into other people yesterday. Luke's got a shiner for his troubles, you know. And it's kind of, oh, Flip, I forgot. This is so full on. You hear the smack of the bodies, you know, and they're all great big tough guys. And then there's a little dude, but he's got a whistle and he's in charge. And you think, who are you? I'm the umpire. Blow the whistle. Back you go. And it's a powerful thing. You know, and, and so peace can be like that. You think it's not such a strong quality, you know, anger. Oh, everyone notices anger. Yeah, but peace can rule anger. Peace, you give it the whistle, the peace of God. And that peace, he'll order the other emotions around. He'll just blow the whistle to frustration and send it off to the sin bin. Say, off you go, you know. And he'll say, all right, you f- feelings of upset, just um, that's a warning. Official warning, watch it. And jealousy, you come here, come here. Now I want you to go back to your team. Your team, it's envy, resentment, you know, jealousy, you're all. I want you to have a word to them because you see the umpires do this, you know, and the captains, again, they're great, big, tough, sweaty guys, muscles bulging out of their shirts, you know. (laughs) And the umpire says, now you have a word to your team, yes. They go back, oh, guys, come on, you know. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, they, they tell them what to do. And uh, I think it's just an awesome picture. You know, you, now, you feelings, you get back behind the light. You stay on side. You do as you're told. These are the rules. You play within them. You don't like it. Yellow card. Red. You say one right. Red card. Off you go. Yesterday, one of the teams, you know, back chat. All right, 10 yards. Back chat again. Fine. You're off. Sin bin. Ah. You know, and everyone's like, shut up. He's got the whistle. You know, you put on bigger and tougher. Shut up. Just do it, you know. I'm anger. I'm frustration. It'll let the peace of God rule. He's got the whistle. And you can do that in your heart. Come on, let the peace of God rule. Your choice. And I just love that because, you know, I sometimes you'll be surprised to hear this because I'm a pastor, but I've been frustrated. A couple of times, like I said, 30 years of marriage. Ruth used to say, oh, she says angry. Ah, no, 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 no. I learned the word frustration. I'm not angry. I'm frustrated. (laughs) Somehow that's sort of okay. Babe, you're angry. Well, we know anger's not good, so I'm not angry. I'm frustrated. And then, of course, we quote the scripture, in your anger, do not sin. Ah, implication is you can be angry and not sin. God can get angry, therefore I can get angry. But maybe that's not a godly anger that I've got, and I've got to admit it. And uh, yeah, so we've all got emotions, and we all got to submit. All right, we've got to finish up. Paul, you know, next week I want to talk about another passage he wrote about the fruit of the spirit in Galatians five. Incredible stuff again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as for Paul, six more years after he wrote that to the Colossians, he was gone, executed by. The Roman Emperor Nero. But he was still walking with Jesus, still walking with contentment, like he wrote to the Philippians, finding the secret of content, still living from the inside out with the Holy Spirit, touching his spirit, leading him right to the end, revealing his submission to God's sovereignty. And why do we know this? Because he wrote a letter just before he died. And we've got it in the Bible. And you may know it's the letter he wrote to his sweet, precious, beloved disciple, Timothy. 
And in 2 Timothy, let me finish with this passage, he writes and he knows about his impending death because he's in prison and he says these wonderful, famous words in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.